And so today I'll be talking about the path of purification. The path of enlightenment or the path of awakening, the path of freedom from suffering. Or as it's known in Buddhist circles, the path of purification. We call it the path of purification because we want to highlight the fact that freedom from suffering, true happiness, enlightenment is nothing other than the purification of the mind. It's nothing other than freedom from delusion and ignorance and misunderstanding about reality. So the first step that we have to take on the path is to begin to understand what we mean by reality. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what do we mean by reality and about understanding and what is the path which leads to understanding which we call the path of purification. Because it is through misunderstanding of reality that we suffer. It's clear that nobody wants to suffer. And yet it's also very clear that quite often we do and we say and we think things that lead to our direct or indirect suffering. So it's clear that we do these things misunderstanding that somehow these, are going, these things are going to bring us true and lasting peace and happiness. If we understood that these things were going to lead to the result that they were going to lead to, we would not ever do or say or even think these things. For instance, getting stressed or worried, uh, becoming sad or depressed. We know that all of these things and, and many other Qualities, things like anger, greed, addiction, uh, stinginess, and jealousy, <coughs> conceit, and and so on. We know that all of these things are uh, are not good things, and yet we continue to bring them about. And the reason we bring these about is because of a misunderstanding of reality. On a very basic level our understanding of reality is based on uh, based on physical based on an understanding of the world as uh, based on the body we believe in something called physics and three-dimensional space and so our understanding of reality is a very physical thing. We think of the world in terms of people and places and things. And as a result of this, we hold on to these things as good or as bad as me or as mine. As controllable as permanent, as satisfying, and so on. And so our reason for becoming addicted and attached to things is because of this misunderstanding of reality. When we see an individual, a person, we become attracted to that person. Not realizing that in reality there's only the phenomenon of seeing the experience of seeing and it's we're actually not seeing a person at all we're only seeing light touching the eye and it's a matrix of uh, light rays which touches the eye and the receptors in the eye are able to decode this this light and even though there's nothing intrinsically attractive about any specific object we become attracted to these things based on a past 
experience. We experience the thing before as, pleas as pleasant. We've gained pleasure before from this object, and we remember that. And so when the light touches the eye, we decode that as being something pleasurable. And when we decode it as being something pleasurable, we then effect a karma or an action. We go ahead and and do the same thing that used to produce the the happy feeling. So for instance, we see food and we remember that that food is delicious and so we take a bite of it. This is a kind of conditioning which we effect upon ourselves. And the result of this the result of this is the creation of greed, the creation of attachment, the creation of craving for that object. Now I say this is all a misunderstanding because in fact reality is based on the mind. And this is something that science isn't able to tell you. This is the, where science and Buddhism, um, I think most of the time would disagree. Whereas we often say that Buddhism and science are uh, on the same wavelength. I think there's a lot of discrepancy. For instance, Buddhists believe in something called rebirth. Scientists believe that at the moment of death, there is nothing. This is in, on a general level. Of course, sci the scientific community is, is broad. But I think in general, and uh, I'd like to do more research on this, but in general, science is pretty, um, pretty adamant on this. They've thrown God out and they have no, mostly have have no belief in God anymore. But they've also thrown things out like reincarnation or rebirth or so on. And this is because science is based on a physical universe. Even Einstein's theories are all physical, based on energy and matter being, um, being the same. I mean, again, I'm not a scientist, so I can't say that deep down this is the truth. But as far as I understand, science equates the mind with a physical um, a sort of a, a physical uh, reaction which then creates consciousness. And Buddhism doesn't really deny this but s simply says that consciousness is something apart from f the physical. And I think this is self-evident. If we give up our scienti any scientific beliefs we have we can sit down and, and see the reality of this. That in reality there is something called mind and what it is is the knowing of an object. Right. It's obvious that the knowing of, of seeing or hearing and smelling and tasting and feeling and thinking is something distinct from the actual object. So in meditation we often watch the breath. And this is a good example to use because though we're breathing all the time, we don't always know that we're breathing. There's not awareness of the breath at all times. In fact, very rarely in our normal everyday life is there an awareness of the fact that we're breathing. But it's very clear that we're breathing all the time. So the breathing is one thing, and the knowing of the breathing is clearly another. The, the breathing itself is physical, and the knowing of the breathing is mental. And this is, this is only from a phenomenological point of view, from an experiential point of view. In terms of science, they do experiments based on the physical world, and so they are not able to, uh, not able to replicate this in the lab. They're not able to see the mind. They're only able to see how it works in terms of the brain and so on. Uh, how the brain reacts to, to various phenomena and so on. But they're unable to see this, this state of knowing, of course, because the knowing takes up no space. Uh, it has no form. It has nothing to do with the physical except that it is aware of the physical. And this is a very, very important, this is a crucial step on the path to understanding, the path to purification. Because this then allows us to let go of our attachment to concepts. Concepts like a human being, concepts like um, food, or concepts like um, beautiful or ugly. So that when we see something, we're able to see it simply for what it is. The awareness of seeing is simply knowing that there is a light touching the eye and that there is something that is being seen, which is the reality of it. It doesn't mean that when we see something we don't process it and, and, uh, and come up with the idea that it's a human being. 
But because we're aware that this is just seeing, and then when the awareness of it being a human being comes up, that this is simply a, um, a process that occurs in the mind, when we're aware of this, as it really is, then we are able to do away with the next step, which is the liking or the disliking of the object. So, for instance, when we see something in meditation, we'll often say to ourselves, seeing. We remind ourselves, this is called mindfulness. It's a very common practice, and it simply means to remind oneself of the reality of the experience. So when we see, we say to ourselves, seeing, seeing, seeing. When we see something that might be very unpleasant, instead of allowing ourselves, normally we'd get very angry or upset. We simply say to ourselves, seeing, seeing, or even something very attractive. Often things which are very attractive can drive people crazy. Um, seeing beautiful people, or seeing uh, delicious food, or so on. Many of the things we see will lead us to, or even items, luxury items, or so on. Some people jewelry, other people electronic toys, and so on. Cars, things which we are attracted to, clothes. And so this is a reason for consumerism, for buying, for having to get, and so on. And when we say to our, so, well, when we follow after these things, we can see the trouble that it brings, of course. We can see how uh, it drains our bank account, it leads to addiction, it can lead to diseases in the case of food, overeating or eating food only because of the taste. Uh, it can lead to fighting, it can lead to gambling, it can even lead to war. When our resources aren't enough, or when we want to live at a standard of li life which is unreasonable. We want to be rich, we want to be opulent, and so we repress other nations, <coughs> fight with other nations, for instance the war for oil and so on. We live at unreasonable standards because of our greed, because of our attachment to these things. But then when we, when we realize this and we come to practice meditation thinking, how can I possibly do away with these addictions or even the anger and the hatred? When I see a certain person who I hate, it makes me very angry. When we come to meditate, when we see them, we simply say, seeing, 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 simply reminding ourselves of the reality of it. And we can pick the reality apart. We don't have to just say seeing. When we feel the painful feeling at seeing something that we don't like, we can say to ourselves, pain, pain, pain. Uh, sad, sad. It can be mental pain. We say upset, upset. When we don't like something, we can say disliking, disliking, disliking. And I, I've given this, this explanation before. There's actually three parts which are very important. It's the phenomenon itself, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, or thinking. Then the feeling which arises because of the phenomenon. And then the emotion which arises because of the feeling. So if it's a happy feeling, we, we give rise to liking. If it's an unhappy feeling, we give rise to disliking. And at first I thought this was just my own idea, but I was suitably pleased yesterday when I was reading through the Buddha's teaching and I found that he actually pointed out these three things as well, which was, which was very exciting to hear that um, this is something that is very much in line with the Buddha's teaching. He said, certain teachers will teach, will emphasize only the experience, certain teachers will emphasize only the, uh, only the, emo the, the feeling that arises, certain teachers will, will emphasize only the, uh, the emotion which arises, and then certain teachers will, will emphasize all three of them. And uh, so his point being that the, the, the last one was the, the most complete, the one who was able to pick these apart. Of course, this is simply taking a piece of what we call dependent origination, which is a very profound uh, topic of the Lord Buddha's teaching. It's simply taking the most important part and, and using it in meditation practice. So I don't think it's unreasonable to think that uh, this is an accurate description of how one should practice the Buddhist teaching, that there are three parts of experience which are most important. This is the, as I said, the phenomenon, the feeling, and the emotion. And we can pick any one of them, it doesn't really matter, but what it does is it breaks the cycle. 
because when we see something it leads to a feeling of happiness or unhappiness and that unhappiness or unhappiness in turn creates the liking or the disliking when we like it we want to get more of it right? so we go toward we go for it again and we give rise to more happy feelings and more liking and we create this cycle until we until this becomes a habit of getting of chasing after and any time that we can't get what we want we of course suffer and this is why there's so much suffering in the world because we're chasing after things that we can't afford uh, chasing after things that conflict with other people's needs and desires and so on we're simply creating addiction we're, we're setting impossible standards of for our life people who are addicted to gambling are a prime example of course but even people who are addicted to food, people who are addicted to uh, sexuality, people who are addicted to sensuality or uh, beautiful things or so on, they can also verify this, that when it, be when it comes to the point of <coughs> needing certain things, then you step on other people's toes. You're listening to some beautiful music and uh, someone else starts making noise and you get angry. Someone else is listening to music and you get angry because it's not the kind of music you like and so on. So our sensual experience, our desire for these things, creates suffering. The same thing if we don't like something. When something arises that is upsetting, <coughs> we give rise to, there arises an unpleasant feeling, and the unpleasant feeling is associated with the anger, the emotion of anger. When we're angry, we run away from the experience, we chase it away, and any time it comes up, we give rise to a stronger bad feeling and more anger, and this creates the cycle. So at any time that we break either of these two, we can break all sorts of addictions and attachments, all sorts of anger and hatred, uh, all sorts of likes and dislikes, to the point where we're able to experience reality just, reality just as it is. And at this point, many people will say, to, will, will ask the question or will become uh, suspicious, saying to themselves, well, anger and greed are, are natural, are they not? It's, na it's natural to have likes and dislikes, and they, in, in their minds, they're feel, in their hearts, they're afraid that somehow meditation practice is going to make life rather dull and, and uninteresting. And, and in fact, this is, I think, a misunderstanding of, of reality or of nature. Because yes, you can, well, you can really say that anything is natural. You can say that nuclear power is natural. You can say that plastic is natural. You can say really that uh, anything is, is natural because it's all part of the universe. But if we look at things another way, we can see that there is a reality at the basis of, of our experience. And you can also say that liking and disliking is a misunderstanding of that reality. For instance, when you see a beautiful person, there's really nothing beautiful about that person at all. In fact, there's really nothing of a person about that experience at all either. They're simply a seeing, an act of seeing. So reality doesn't admit to any likes or dislikes. It doesn't have anything about it that says this is something worth liking, this is something worth disliking. And based on the results of likes and dislikes, we can see that in fact it's not only is it uh, a non sequitur, it's also uh, something which is of no use to us. So liking doesn't, doesn't for any reason bring about uh, a good states of of mind. Liking doesn't lead to happiness. Happiness leads to liking, but, but not the other way around. And in fact, once our happiness is based on a certain object, we need this to be happy, if this comes we're not going to be happy, and so on, then it's like segregating experience. This part is good experience, this part is bad experience. And instead of accepting the full spectrum of experience and being what you could say happy all the time, we actually limit, reduce our happiness based on our need for certain experiences and our inability to withstand other, other experiences. So this is the most important point, I think, that we have to get past if we're going to begin to practice meditation. It's called right view in the Buddha's teaching, an understanding of reality as it is, uh, understanding of reality being based in two parts. One part is the body and one part is the mind. Or one part is physical, one part is mental. And seeing reality based on, a, on what it really is, not in terms of what we think it is or the concepts which we create in our mind.
Because when we do this, only then we can come to see reality as it really is, watch things as they're arising and ceasing, and are able to change many of the bad habits or misunderstandings which are causing us suffering, are leading to uh, our our own sadness and despair and, the, and leading us to hurt other people. So this, this is the first understanding that I, I wanted to explain because next I'm going to talk about the path, the path of purification. And I want to go a little bit broader and talk about the various paths in the world. But before I'm going to do that, I have to explain this about the mind because the paths I'm going to be explaining deal with things with a thing called rebirth. Uh, rebirth is very similar to the doctrine of reincarnation, except that reincarnation postulates a soul. See, Buddhism doesn't admit the existence of anything that cannot be experienced. So a soul cannot be ad admitted, because you can never experience a soul, just as a person could not be admitted. You can say, this is a person, this is a man, this is a woman, this is my friend, this is my enemy. But in the end, the existence of these things, though it's admitted in a conventional sense, in an ultimate sense, it's not allowed because it doesn't exist. It means in a discussion of what is re real, we can't include the idea of a person because in the end, there's only the mind which has experienced things again and again, and then there's the, the object of the, of the mind which is, which is being experienced. So inside of an individual person, if we close our eyes, even though we might think there's a soul, we know for us, for, as a fact we can't experience it. We often get this idea that I am, but even that idea is just an idea. Uh, sometimes we, we might be thinking about a certain thing and then suddenly we're thinking about a completely different thing. Right? Sometimes we're getting very angry and we don't know why we're getting very angry. Now this is contrary to the idea of a soul. A soul is something which is in control, or something which acts, which does. And so sometimes we get the idea that the soul is in control, but the soul is, uh, is mysterious to us, or so on. And it's kind of like the idea of God as being mysterious and sort of behind the scenes. But Buddhism doesn't admit this sort of thing. It's, it's generally considered to be a... Um, a delusion which exists in the mind. And it's similar to the idea of coincidence. Things happen coincidentally and suddenly you get all sorts of ideas, like maybe you're able to um, you're able to predict the future, or maybe, you know, I was thinking about the person and suddenly they called me, or so on. And there's many of examples like this. Some people say, you know, they look at the clock and every time they look at the clock it says 111 or 222 or 333 and they think, wow, that's very strange. But, but actually, when they, if you think about it, you look at the clock many times during the day, and it doesn't say those things. It doesn't say one 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 or two two two. But when it doesn't say, when it doesn't show something strange, it doesn't register in the mind. So you forget that you even looked at the clock. And the only ones you remember are the strange ones. And of course, the same is when you're thinking of someone and then they call, because you think of a thousand people in a day, and they don't all call you. But when they do call you, you say, "Wow, I was thinking about you," and then you called. And, and so experience works in this way. We set up all these delusions and, and, and ideas, like the idea of God, for instance. You know, things just couldn't happen like this if it weren't for God. And of course, we forget all about all those other strange things which sort of um, deny the existence of a God. There's a funny example that I, I uh, heard about. There's this man who claimed that uh, the banana was proof that, the, that God existed. And he said, why? Because if you look at the banana, it fits perfectly into the human hand. Even the three, uh, the three corners of the banana fit into the human hand, and there's a tab on it, and it fits perfectly over the human hand. It's even angled to fit towards the human mouth. And he said, this is proof uh, that, that God made the creation for our benefit. And he actually put out a video, and it was quite, quite hilarious. Because then all the atheists came back and said, well, don't you understand that you know humans genetically engineered the banana to fit in their hand and to uh, lean towards the mouth and so on? I mean, if you looked at bananas in Thailand, they're not <laughs> nearly as human-oriented. Yeah. You know, and even you know the 
they call the forest bananas, which have seeds in them and are, are not very pleasant to eat, which are the original bananas. And there's many examples of this. The cucumber as well used to have spikes on it. And you couldn't eat a computer, a, a, a cucumber, sorry. They, the cucumber used to have spikes on it. And you couldn't, you couldn't say that, oh, look at the cucumber. It fits perfectly into the human hand. Well, that's because humans, over the years, you know, without, without really understanding it, genetically modified it. Or, sorry, not genetically, whatever you say that. Um, I don't know what the word is, but through, through hybrids and through, uh, I forget what, it is, what the name is, but through selective farming. Sorry, not genetically modifying it, but this is over the generations, over the eon, the centuries or so on. So, just to point out, I'm not, I'm not going, going, um, I'm not going entirely with the idea of of, of uh, humans being responsible for everything or everything being chance or so on like that. But just to point out the fact that often we we come up with these crazy ideas simply based on on you know our limited understanding of of, of the experience in front of us. You know, they used to think that. Of course, we were all, when we were kids, when it, when it rained, we think God is crying or so on like that. And the idea of a pot of gold at the end of a rainbow or so on. We have all these ideas. And the idea of a soul is, is one such idea. It doesn't mean that you or I don't exist, but in the concept of rebirth, it's only just the continuation of the mind. It actually requires no faith whatsoever. Because reality, when we close our eyes and even just begin to meditate, we can see clearly without any doubt what reality is. It's, it's exactly as I explained it in the beginning of the talk. As you start to watch, you see the mind arising and ceasing, knowing this and knowing that. Different kinds of knowing arise. But there's nothing that says this knowing is related to that knowing, or this knowing is the same mind as that knowing. Every knowing could be, could be just as easily described, or even more accurately described, as a um, unique and individual knowing which arises and ceases. And this is how it's explained in Buddhism. This is all that we admit based on experience. We say experience is just as it is. There's nothing behind the scenes. There's nothing outside of experience. If it's outside of experience, you can't, you can't say that it exists in terms of Buddhist uh, understanding. It's only a thought which arises in your mind. There's, in no way does it exist, uh, unless it, except at the moment when it's experienced. So these two things are equated. And I think this truly brings us back to some, a reality which is real instead of a reality which is theoretical. And science, you know, science has all these textbooks that tell you about reality and atom, atoms and protons. And you know, in one sense, you could say those things are real. But when you're reading the textbook and you're bringing up all these ideas in your mind, it's so abstract and unreal as opposed to the reality of our experience, which is really real. And so it's, it's far more useful, it's far more beneficial, and it's much more real understanding of reality. So whereas science might have its own ideas of what is real, we say, well, that's simply seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and mostly thinking, coming up with all sorts of ideas. Right? In the beginning, it was the idea of an atom. And this is something which you can see, apparently. You know, you have these instruments and you're allowed, they allow you to see an atom, or at least to conceive of an atom. But in the end, that's only seeing. It's seeing something very special, which requires a very specific set of phenomenon to arise in order for you to see it. But in the end, it's only seeing, or hearing, or smelling, or tasting, or feeling, or thinking. There's nothing outside of experience. There's no one thing which could arise which would not be based on the seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, or thinking. The problem is we dwell mostly in thinking. And so we create all sorts of ideas. Whatever we see, we interpret it to be this or that. We hear, right away our mind is interpreting. So what is the understanding of Buddhist rebirth in, in terms of this experiential reality? Well, rebirth simply says that there's no death. That once we do away with the idea of a physical body as being something truly real, and we understand the universe to be based on the mind or based on the experience, the, the experience of a, of a phenomenon, then there's no reason to, to doubt or to be skeptical about the idea of a continuation of this. There's no proof, there's no um, case study which could say, you know, at this moment it suddenly ceases. 
this experience suddenly ceases just because the body changes. You could postulate that and it's one idea. So you could say we really don't know what happens. But there's no reason to say, well, just because the body falls apart that somehow the mind isn't going to stop uh, experiencing things. And in fact, according to Buddhism, this is not what happens. At the moment of death, nothing changes. So there's, there's no theory involved. It's just saying that this doesn't change. It's the throwing out of a theory which uh, is speculative, which says that at the moment of death, suddenly the mind stops. It's kind of turning things on its tail because people think Buddhists and Hindus and so on believe in rebirth. So we turn it around and say, well, we don't believe in anything. We believe in experience. And we just say, not, we don't believe the, the fact that at this point or this point or this point, it ceases. We do have other beliefs, but we're going to put those aside for now. We believe when uh, an arahant dies that there's no rebirth and so on and so on. But we, we put that aside for now. We don't have to examine that because here we're just talking about the experience for, most of, for the majority of us. Uh, so we'll start here. And this doesn't require any belief. This requires simply an understanding of reality and saying, okay, throw away all beliefs that this is somehow going to change. Once we understand this is reality, we have to add something in order to believe that this is going to cease. So this is a Buddhist understanding of rebirth. Now, there's, of course, people who doubt this or maybe uh, uh, challenge it or so on. That's fine. It's not also something that is truly necessary to believe. But it'll help when you understand what I'm, what I'm going to talk about next. It'll help at least talking about the other paths which exist. Because often what people say is that all paths lead in the same direction. Or they say, whatever path is good for you, that's the right path for you. Whatever path you believe in, that's the right path for you. And Buddhism denies this. I want to make this clear. Because even within Buddhism, there are many different teachings which do not necessarily have to lead in the same direction. There's no reason to believe that they should. And the reason why, generally, why people like to say this is because they don't want to cause uh, conflict. Right? Someone else practicing in this way and we're practicing in another way. When we come together, we want to make friends, we want to be happy, we don't want to have to argue. So we say, look, all paths lead in the same direction or all paths are good, whatever path is good. And this works. It works in terms of keeping friends, in terms of um, social relations and so on. But it doesn't follow out through in reality. In reality, there are many different paths which lead uh, in very different directions. And I'll explain this to make it more clear. I think if we were going to be honest, we would change our dialogue and say, um, if the path is good for you, then I'm happy for you. Or we would find some way to stay friends with people who follow different paths without having to pretend that somehow their path was the same path as our path. And I think this is fairly important, and it, it might even be important for us to sometimes upset people, trying to, to show them that their path is actually probably not the best path for them. And I want to make this, let me explain myself, because some people think this is kind of bigoted or perhaps uh, egotistical to think that somehow our path is the best or so on. I'm just going to illustrate different paths, and some of them are clearly uh, unhappy sort of paths, or paths that would lead to a great amount of suffering, which are not good for the people who follow them. So altogether, we admit seven paths in Buddhism. The first one is the path to hell. The second path is the path to uh, the ghosts. The third path is the path to the animal realm. The fourth path is the path to be uh, become a human. The fifth path is the path to go to heaven. The sixth path is the path to become God, or to become one with God, you could say. And the seventh path is the path to freedom, the path to Nibbana, or Nirvana, as we say. So this is something that maybe many people weren't, didn't expect from Buddhism, that somehow we have the idea of hell and heaven and so on. And maybe it, it seems very, very far-fetched to, to think that we could somehow be born as an animal and we think, well, this now here's a leap of faith. The idea that somehow we can go to hell or become an animal or a ghost or so on. But let me explain it to you. We don't have to believe it. You can take it back as food for thought. And maybe it's true, maybe it's not. We don't have to believe anything in Buddhism. But when we listen to these things, we can sort of understand how it, how it 
plays out because now we're focusing on the, the state of mind. So hell, you could even say it's a state of mind. In fact, all of these things you could say is a, are states of mind since now we're simply looking at the world from an experiential point of view and we don't have this belief in the body. You know, the body which we see is just a seeing or a hearing or a smelling or a tasting or a feeling or a thinking. In one sense, it does exist, but only as an aggregate of experiences, only as an aggregate of, of form which comes together in our experience. And so it's common for meditators, once they're practicing for extended, extended periods of time, that their body actually disappears. And the, the truth is the body doesn't disappear. Some people will come and tell the teacher, I was sitting and suddenly my body disappeared, or I didn't know where I was sitting, and I didn't know whether I was sitting facing this way or facing that way. My hands disappeared and I had to move my hands to feel them. And the truth is it didn't disappear. None of this disappeared at all. The truth is it never existed in the first place. And so as we practice on, we can see this. We can see that actually uh, what we thought was a body was only a concept which arose in our, our mind. And this allows us to sort of understand how it's possible to change for this body to change. That the moment of the death of this body, that's just a change. It's like a wave. You know, we have all of the material there, like the ocean. When you see a wave crashing on the shore, you say that's a wave. But actually, it's just a part of the, the great ocean. The same when we're born. When we're born, it's a wave, and then it crashes. But the truth is, the body and the mind are still in the same, uh, still a part of the same ocean. That there's really, the wave is only just an expression or a um, certain formation of body and mind, which work, work together for a certain time and then, and then part, and then go their separate ways. So. There's no, there's no reason for us to believe more in the reality of being a human than for us to believe in the reality of hell, for instance. You know, there's nothing any more reasonable about being born a human. If we think about it, actually being born a human is a very strange and, and uh, mysterious sort of thing. I mean, why are we born like this? Why are we, why do we have two hands and so on? Why do, why do things when you throw them up? Why do they come down? Uh, why does matter exist? Why does energy exist? And so on. Why does the universe exist like this? There's nothing particularly special about being a human that makes it any more reasonable than being born in hell, for instance. Except that the path to hell is very, very different from the path to being born a human. And the mind states involved with being born in hell are very different from being born as a human. Now, we can even step one, go one step further and say, well, you don't have to believe in hell. But here we're talking about a state of mind. Because it doesn't matter if you believe in afterlife or you believe in hell. Uh, we, can, we can understand hell even in this life. We can understand all of these paths even in this life. We don't have to understand what happens when we die. But it's easy to make the, the leap. That when you die and you've got no body to cling to, you've, all you've got is the mind. And the mind continues to arise and cease, but it's based on past habits. So what are the habits that lead one to hell? The habits which lead one to hell are anger, or hatred, or disliking. And so without going into the next life, we can see how this works in this life. Many people are angry by habit. Their general nature is angry or hate hateful, evil sort of people. And so you can look at many people and you can say that person is like one, like a, a demon out of hell. You look at people and they look like demons. They look like hell beings. And in fact, they're generally in hell. They are uh, full, of, full of disliking, full of suffering, full of pain at all times, never at ease, never at rest, always causing suffering for themselves and suffering for other people based on their anger. In fact, the Lord Buddha said, which I think is very true, is that uh, the worst thing you can do, uh, the worst thing an enemy can do for you to you is make you angry. When you get angry at some, when you get angry at someone, it's like you've done them a favor, because you make yourself what they could only wish for you. They want you to be unhappy and suffer. Our enemies want us to suffer, and when we get angry, of course, we suffer terribly. 
This is something I think we don't realize. When we get angry, we think it's a good thing because we're going to make other people suffer, people who deserve to suffer. But actually it's us who is suffering when we feel the anger. And the more anger we feel, the more we suffer. You can see people who get, are very angry. Nobody wants to be around them. It's, it's the first step in losing friendships, in, in breakdowns of family and so on, is anger. And so even in this life, you could say the person is, is going to hell. If you, uh, the, the least we can do, even if we're not ready to believe in things like rebirth or the continuation of the mind after the physical body fades away, is say that if there is a rebirth, or suppose there were a rebirth, this person is going to hell. People who have strong anger, who kill and do bad deeds based on their anger, who hurt other beings, who say bad things, who are always mean and evil and nasty. This person, it looks like they're straight out of hell. And if, if there is an afterlife based on these habits, that mind is going to be in a very bad shape in the future. And so what happens when a person dies, if they're full of total anger, then there's no thought of coming back as a human. There's nothing particularly human about their mind at all. So they're born in a state of great suffering. And that lasts for as long as this anger, as long as this hatred or the power of their evil lasts in the mind until they're able to slowly snap out of it, slowly overcome these, the anger and slowly uh, give up the whatever it was that led them to be born in hell. This is the first path. The second path is the path to be being born a ghost. And ghosts are something that we understand in the West. We probably hear less and less about now, but when we're kids we often uh, tell ghost stories and uh, there's many movies which are ghost stories and so on. There's even many people who claim to have seen ghosts or who have felt ghosts or so on, who have experienced contact with ghosts and so we have this general understanding of ghosts from a long time and it actually it very much coincides with what it would take to make one become a ghost because ghosts are not actually that scary things they're not things which would cause should cause one to be afraid or to be worried or to think that somehow it was going to cause suffering for oneself ghosts are pitiful pitiful unhappy beings we, what we understand is ghosts generally are cold. You know, whenever a ghost comes near, suddenly it gets cold. Uh, wailing, very strongly attached to certain places or people or things. Uh, and generally without, generally clinging to something. And so this is totally, completely in line with what they say leads one to become a ghost in the first place, is attachment or greed, addiction. And it's easy to see from people who are, say, drug addicts or very much addicted to certain things, is they become very pale and they become very thin and very unhappy, uh, very uh, attached. And it's it's like a state of being of a ghost. It's some a ghost is someone who ha is a being who has nothing, who who is unable to uh, find happiness, is unable to rest, because they're always chasing after things or chasing after something. And it can often come simply from being attached to a person or attached to a place. You know, often people, they say these ghost stories about people who are engaged to be married and then they died or so on. And then they haunt the other person or they haunt the place, a specific place, waiting to get married or so on. We have all these ghost stories. Whether these ghost stories are true or not, it, it, it sort of gives a, lends some insight into the, the nature of ghosts, which is in line with our understanding of, of what leads one to be born as a ghost. But it's just as easy, easy to talk about being a ghost in this very life because people who are greedy are just like what we would, we would think of as a ghost. They're beings that have nothing. Uh, you, can, you can have everything and if you still have lots of greed and attachment then it's like you're someone with nothing. Or nothing is good enough for you. There's no rest. There's no peace. There's no happiness. You're always without. You're always feeling lacking. And so at the moment of death, this mind state prevails. And as a result, one is born as a ghost. The third path is the path to being born as an animal. And this path is the path of 
of delusion, the path of ignorance, the path of misunderstanding. And this you can sort of see in those people who live their lives not interested in meditation, not interested in learning, not interested in wisdom, not interested in any of the higher pursuits, people who are interested only in sleeping and eating and sensual indul indulgence, always getting whatever they want, but just kind of lazy and a sort of uh, happy to be ignorant, happy to be without any, happy to be told what to do, happy to sit in front of the television. And these people are easy to spot. In fact, you can see people in this life who look just like animals. You can see it when they eat, you can see it when they talk, you can see it in everything they do. That there's really nothing um, very much different between them and, say, a dog or a ordinary, uh, everyday, an ordinary animal. And so, this, is, according to Buddhism, this is how why beings are separated out, why animals are separated out. Why are some animals, you know, smart, and why are some other animals like, like humans, or have a very developed consciousness, and monkeys have a less developed consciousness, and dogs even less, and so on. And this is totally, completely based on the state of mind when one passes away. In fact, it's um, it's very telling that, uh, or it's very revealing to think that the mind is what is is responsible for all of these different rebirths. Uh, it, it explains a lot about why the universe is separated out the way it is. I mean, one, science has its own explanation that it all happened based on evolution and it would have to happen this way anyway. And that's, well, that's one theory and one way of understanding things. And it coincides somewhat with the Buddhist theory because of course things did evolve and they do change as beings change, as beings evolve as our minds change and our minds evolve but the mind plays a very strong part in this of what part we're going to play in this in this whole evolution where we, where we go, where we, um, where we pa pass on to so being born as a different kind of animal in general it's based on, on a lower state of, of uh, enlightenment or intelligence or mindfulness, sort of this uh, disinterest or laziness, which leads us not to be interested in higher things. As a result, when we die, there's nothing special about the mind. The mind is, has no opportunity to be born as a, such a special being, as a human being. Because it's very clear that actually human beings are very special. There's no other animal on the planet like human beings, except maybe dolphins, you could say that. Uh, dolphins are, are close second and of course that, that doesn't discount anything that just means that being born as a dolphin is a very special thing as an example the fourth path is the path to being born a human and what is it that take, it takes to be born a human being born as a human takes a certain special set of, of virtues you have to have a, a certain restraint the people who are killing who are stealing who are addicted to cheating and adultery, people who are addicted to lying and backbiting, people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. Uh, these, these beings are, are those which are, are most likely to be born in hell or as ghosts or as animals, based on their uh, state of mind, based on the state the level of, of defilements, which has a very strong pull on the mind, which has a very strong influence on the mind. Beings who are able to do away with these things, who are, who are special in the sense that they are restrained. They feel, they feel empathy for other beings. They don't want other beings to uh, be hurt. They have kindness and they have compassion. So they don't want to kill and they don't want to hurt other beings. Uh, they feel the need to be righteous in terms of their livelihood. You know, getting their, whatever they get, they feel the need to get in the right way, to be upright, and so they don't steal. Uh, they feel the need to be content, they feel the need to be free from addiction, and so they don't commit adultery or sexual misconduct, they're content with what they have, and so on. Uh, they feel a need to be, to be uh, truthful, to be in line with reality, and so they don't lie. And they feel the need to be mindful, to be alert, so they don't take drugs or alcohol. And of course, these five things are qualities of a human being. Our uh, kindness and compassion, our upright stature, our 
contentment, our um, our our the the ability to uh, be truthful or to understand such high things as as truth and as reality, and our mindfulness, our awareness, and many being many humans, of course. Uh, repress this and they do away with it and they give up this and as a result when they die they don't come back to be born as a human being the reason we were born as a human being is because we had developed these to at least a certain extent and it's a very special thing they say to be born as a human being because you have to have all of these qualities and this is why we can see in, in at least most people we can see even no matter how bad a person they, they are we can still see some glimmer of, of hope in them some glimmer, glimmer of goodness in them and this is because well, that's the very reason why they were born a human being. That there is goodness in them. And we might not see that in all animals. We might not see any glimmer of, of, uh, of something special in all animals. That many animals are simply um, moved by their, their uh, innate um, what is it, instincts or their instinctual behavior. So this is what it takes to become a human being, is a general sense of goodness, or a general level of goodness. Now what separates humans from angels, this is the next one, is the path which leads to heaven, is angels are, are incredibly special beings. Uh, being born in heaven is a very, very special thing. It's a state of being which is just the opposite of hell, and all it takes is the opposite of, of what it takes to go to hell, is a heightened states of, of goodness where the mind is purely fixed on good deeds. And we can see this in the world, even today, we can see that there are many people, well, we've surely met at least some people who are angelic. And even though we might not believe in heaven ourselves, we can admit that, well, supposing there were a heaven, this person is going there. And that person might not be us. We ourselves might have many vices and so on. But we can look at some people and they're just incredibly pure and thoughtful and considerate and nice and kind people. And these are indeed the kind of people who go to heaven. They need special virtues like um, higher morality, um, they need wisdom, they need generosity, all sorts of wholesome states of mind. They have to be uh, fixed and focused on happiness and goodness, creating states of peace and, and happiness in the world. So this is not an easy, clearly not an easy thing. And going to heaven is not simply believing this or believing that. This is clearly goes totally against cause and effect. But once we understand the world based, the universe based on the mind, once we're able to see this simply from our experience of it, it doesn't take any faith. We can see that if I develop my mind to that extent, then surely my future is bright. And of course, even this life is bright. If we live our lives in peace and happiness, peace and harmony with other beings, bringing only good things to uh, to the world, to other people, then surely in this life we will meet with great happiness and peace. Our minds will be content. We'll never have to feel guilty or upset. We'll always feel at peace and at one with the rest of humanity, the rest of the world. So this is another path, the path which leads to heaven. I think by now it should be clear that not all paths. Uh, are clearly lead in the same direction. But most of these paths are not considered spiritual paths anyway, except maybe the last one, or the last two. Some people consider going to heaven to be a spiritual path, and so they undertake to do many good deeds in the hopes that they will be born in heaven. And it's, of course, important to understand that none of these paths is permanent. Being born in hell is not permanent, but being born in, born in heaven is also not permanent. You can be reborn in heaven... But there's a, there's a reason why you were gone to heaven. It's based on the causal relationship from between one mind and another mind. One after another, after another, after another. And the build-up, which changes the, the dimension of one's existence, the state of one's existence. Now, the, the final two, the next one is the way to become one with God. Now, this is also not permanent, but... This is something which many religious traditions talk about. Hinduism is very strongly based on the oneness with God or becoming one with God or even becoming God. And so there's very strong meditation practices which are based on, 
on the creation of those mind states of oneness, of wholeness, of godliness. And these are the practices which lead one to become one with God. In general, these are, these are the kinds of things we associate with meditation practice. And so often we are uh, surprised when we find out that Buddhist meditation is not like, like what we thought it would be, or not like any meditation which we've ever heard of or practiced before. Buddhist meditation is, is not based on creating oneness or wholeness or godliness or particularly particular states of mind. Now the Buddha taught these kinds of meditation as well, but he taught the limit of them. The Buddha grew up in India and so he was very familiar with these meditations and he taught them as sort of a preliminary uh, focusing of the mind because of course it was very easy for people in ancient times to develop these. Nowadays it's much more difficult and time-consuming, so we don't waste so much time on them because we have limited uh, times time on this earth. But it's still possible to practice them. But in the end, these things, uh, these are the kinds of practices such as focusing the mind on a particular object, on a dot of light, on the third eye, focusing on a mantra, focusing on a sound, focusing on some specific object to the point where the mind becomes fixed, becomes one, becomes uh, immeasurable uh, until the mind becomes perfect or so on. It attains to a state of perfect harmony and peace and perfect awareness. And this all sounds great and this is generally what people are looking for in meditation but the downside of it is that it's not permanent. And the reason it's not permanent is because it had a cause. It was based on work. It was based on effort that we put out. It's like building something up, building up a castle. The castle has a certain strength to it, but eventually the even the castle is going to degrade, it's going to fall apart. When we build something up, eventually it falls down. When we build up a state of mind, eventually that mind, of course, ceases. That mind, of course, fades away. It has a certain power to it, it has a certain force to it, and that force is always limited because the effort which we put out is always limited. It's impossible to put out an unlimited uh, force, an unlimited power. So these states lead one to become one with God, to become to a very godly state of mind, and in fact there are beings which exist, which live in this sort of reality, in this sort of situation. The final path, though, is the path of insight meditation, the path of understanding reality. And once we understand reality, the, this is called the path of purification, is the path of insight, the path of realization, the path of understanding. And it's simply an understanding of the reality as we experience it. Because all of our suffering, all of our depression, all of our unhappiness, this all comes from a misunderstanding of the experience as it arises. Once we understand the experience as we're receiving it, as we're experiencing it, it's like untying of a knot. It's like the, because the knot, when we see it, it's all tangled up and we think of it as a very real thing. And when we come and we practice and we untie the knot, it's as though it was never there. We see the rope simply as a rope without the knot. So in the same way, we see reality simply for what it is. And this is based on the practice of mindfulness. So when we watch the rising and the falling of the stomach, we see it clearly as it is. We don't make anything more of it than it is. We don't make anything more than the simple experience of it. When we see something, we take it simply as seeing. When we hear, we take it simply as hearing. When we smell, we take it simply as smelling. This is the teaching of the Lord Buddha, and this is the path, what we call the path of purification. It's a very special path in that it doesn't make anything more out of things than they are. It's not the building up of special states. It's not the chasing after happiness or, or harmony or any sort of state whatsoever. It's the letting go and the bring, coming back and the attainment to a experience which is totally based on reality, which is based on nature, which is based on uh, the experience as it exists. And this is the practice which we're following here. It's a practice which allows us to give up anger, allows us to give up greed, allows us to give up delusion and misunderstanding. Once we see things as they are, we never have to worry about stress or suffering again. 
And so really we're doing a very simple thing. When we walk, we're with the foot, we're not trying to create anything whatsoever. We're trying to let go of many things and give up many things. We're not trying to force things to be in a certain way. We're only trying to experience them as they are. And this is the reason why we practice the way we're practicing. This is the path of purification. So I wanted to explain how it's quite different from other paths. And I think I've done so and done so, taken enough, enough of your time doing so. So I'd like to uh, end it there and sort of give this as a uh, something for you to think about and something to help you to, at the very least, gain encouragement in our practice and understand what is the right practice that we're not trying to build anything up, we're not trying to create anything. We're only trying to remind ourselves about what really is being experienced, what really exists, so that we don't give rise to all sorts of misunderstandings as good or bad, as me or mine, as self or soul, and so on. So that is the Dhamma for today. And I'll leave you with that, and then I'll encourage everyone to continue on, first do mindful prostration, and then walking in and sitting.